This is a crowd podcast. Who is Whitney Houston? That's an easy question, isn't it? She's a singer, sings like almost no one else can. She's unforgettable, genuine superstar. She's everywhere, 200 million records sold. But it's not just about numbers, it's the songs she sings. They pop into your head easily. Actually, they're in there already. Their first dances at weddings, their first kisses, their absolute karaoke classics. Whitney is happy when you see her in her pop videos, on stage. That smile, those eyes, the fingers of her right hand opening and closing on the mic as she sings, fluttering. She's not a dancer, she doesn't need to be. The songs aren't subtle, they're not meant to be. Her voice gets through to people, big themes, simple themes, heartbreak and redemption, love and devotion. Tears, but happy tears. People who love Whitney, really love Whitney. A lot of time has been and gone since she died, alone, ill, broken, but Whitney, she's not the past tense. She's the perfect imperfect. Perfect, that's the word. Voice, perfect. Looks, perfect. Never out of breath, always together. Never a bum note, always a hit, always a hook. That's who Whitney Houston is, isn't it? It is and it isn't too. This is a woman who calls herself Nippy, not Whitney. That's what her family call her too. Her friends, her lovers. This is a woman who is happy singing, but only happy singing. Who is about first dances and first kisses, but marries an abusive drug addict. Imperfect. It's a black woman in an industry run mainly by white men. It's a black superstar criticized for not being black enough, whatever that means. This is someone everyone wants to be, who hates being herself. And so, that question, who is Whitney Houston? It's not that we don't know, it's that she doesn't know. And so, she keeps coming back to the same questions. What do I want? What do they want from me? Did I choose all this, or was it them? Those are the big ones, but there's a little one too. Can I be me? So there's four people we need to talk about. The ones who might have the answers. Her mother, Sissy Houston. Her producer, Clive Davis. Her lover, Robin Crawford. And her husband, Bobby Brown. Those are the four. There's other things we'll talk about. Religion, sexual identity, manipulation, exploitation cocaine. For now though, it's those questions. This is Death of a Rockstar, a new series from Crowd Network. Let's start with Whitney's mother, Sissy. You've heard her voice before, you just don't know it. Remember that film 20 Feet from Stardom, all about backing singers? Well, that's Sissy Houston. Her group, she calls them the Sweet Inspirations, because that's what they do. 
behind Aretha Franklin and Elvis and Luther Vandross. Harmonies like honey, lifting a great song and a great singer to somewhere else, somewhere ecstatic. Sissy's pure music. Her niece is Dionne Warwick. All those elegant hits. Anyone who had a heart, walk on by. Poise and sadness. So Dion is Little Whitney's cousin and so is her sister Dee Dee, who's a singer too. Aretha, she's not actually Whitney's godmother, as everyone thinks, but she's close enough that she might as well be. And Sissy's music, like Aretha's, like Dion's, comes from the church. That's where Whitney learns to sing, just like all of them. The New Hope Baptist Church in Newark, New Jersey. Red bricks, white spires, three crosses behind the altar inside, red pews. Three times a week, Whitney sings in the choir. Other times, you can see her in the family's basement studio, using an old broom as a pretend mic, <laughs> slipping into her mother's dresses, her heels, her wigs. Sissy doesn't see herself. She sees an uncertain girl who wants to sing to make people happy. But it's about Sissy, all this. The musical heritage, the education, what's it all for? Sissy was always in the background, always 20 feet away. When she thinks about her daughter, she wants her to be center stage. So she tells her and she drills her and she forces her. She says to her, every song has a story. It's not about writing your own songs this life. It's about finding new material in old hits. It's singing someone else's tune. Whitney learns to make every word count, make it clear, make it ring out. She has this vocal trick from her mom called melisma. It's where you take one syllable and draw it out, make it flutter, dance around the notes while holding that single sound. Everyone's borrowed it now. All the big female singers, Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, but no one does it like Whitney. That's what Clive Davis hears when he gets the tip off. And there's something else. Sissy tells Whitney her voice is a gift from God. She says, he has chosen you. He has laid his hands upon you. And you look after God's gifts. Aretha, she used to smoke cool lights, two packets a day. Whitney... She's on Luden's honey licorice cough drops. She's on a drink called throat coat and she's adding extra honey. It's all perfect even as it's imperfect. Sissy and her husband John, Whitney's dad, they've separated. They still turn up in public together because it's not who you want to be, it's what others expect. So let's talk about Clive Davis, the producer. Clive does not look cool. <laughs> He has a comb over, he wears a brown sports jacket, a bit like Mike Reed who used to play Frank Butcher in EastEnders. He has tinted glasses, not actual sunglasses, but glasses with yellow lenses. He looks like a lawyer from a nice Jewish family in Brooklyn, because he was. It's not what he is now. He's the man who signed Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel. He's the man who started Arista Records and signed Barry Manilow, and then Aretha and Dion. That's where the nickname has come from. That's why they call him the Music Man. There's a photo of him when he signs Whitney when she's 19 and he's early 40s. She's got short hair, worn natural, sweatshirt and jeans. He'll change all that soon. Clive, 
He looks like a retired cricketer. He's in a V-neck, striped jumper, slacks, a tie, but his expression is where you want to be looking. Because Clive knows, I've got another biggie here. That's what his expression tells you. He talks about his discovery. That's the sort of thing Clive does. Except he doesn't discover Whitney. Sissy creates her. Davis packages her, just as he's packaged himself. Because what we don't know back then is that Clive Davis, married Clive Davis with kids, is bisexual. He's just not telling anyone. We're back to that little question. Can I be me? Sissy knows Clive brings power. He brings access. She also knows he's about control. So here's what she says. It felt a bit strange to step back. The other person she's not sure about, that's Robin Crawford, Robin with a Y. She's two years older than Whitney, 19 when they first meet. And here's the first thing Robin remembers about her new best friend. Gold watch necklace, Adidas gazelles with red stripes, neat shorts. This is what Whitney says. Hey, I'm nippy. That nickname is after a cartoon character who messes around. And that first day, Nippy is Nippy. She brings out a joint. When Robin's mum meets her, she says, you look like an angel, but I know you're not. Sissy sees Robin and thinks the same. She says, I had a bad feeling about that child. And so even as Nippy is singing three times a week with the choir at the New Hope Baptist Church, she's having an affair with Robin. They're scoring cocaine together. Just a little, all for fun. They're going out to gay clubs together. They're just together. But this is not about what you want. It's about what they want. Whitney talks to Robin. I could never tell my mother about how I'm feeling. Clive Davis talks to Whitney. Here's where you can get to if you play the game. And so Whitney talks to Robin again, this time bringing her a present. It's a Bible. We can't be physical anymore. That's what she tells her. We would go to hell. They still move into an apartment together, but now it's friendship and business. Robin becomes her assistant, not her lover. Someone else to help the career. Someone else to push her center stage. Right, we need to talk about something else. Something the pastor at the New Hope Baptist Church talks about. He calls it double consciousness. It's not a new idea, but it's a powerful one. It's the idea that as a black person in America, you look at yourself through someone else's eyes. You measure yourself by someone else's standards. You're a black individual being judged by white society. And here's what it means for Nippy. As a kid, she's picked on by other black kids for being pale-skinned. At college, she's asked to sing at her classmate's wedding until the Italian-American parents find out she's black and cut the invite. So she records her debut album with Clive Davis and hears whispers in the record company that the cover photos look too black. Their words, 
too black. When she goes on a promo tour, they ask her to get a weave done. That's someone else's dead hair tied into yours. Short black hair made to look longer and straighter. And so you're stuck. She performs at the Carnegie Hall in New York. Protesters are unhappy that the promoters are white. So they carry signs with two words, Whitey Houston. The album comes out on Valentine's Day. Clive knows what he wants. Six of the 10 tracks are ballads, big themes, simple themes. It works. It's the biggest selling record by a solo female artist ever. At the Grammys, it's a cousin Dionne Warwick who hands over a trophy. And the second album works again with the weave still in and her skin looking lighter. She has three more number one singles. That's seven in a row. That's more than the Beatles, more than Elvis. It works, but it doesn't. There's a headline in the New York Times, she's singing by formula. When she goes on stage at the Soul Train Music Awards in 1989, and remember that date, it matters later, she gets booed. It's the second time it's happened. Here's what Sissy says. Nippy was never trying to be white. She just wanted to sing, to be herself. Here's what Whitney says when a reporter asks about not being black enough. What's black? I don't know how to sing black. I don't know how to sing white either. Music is not colour to me, it's an art. All those questions, what do I want? Did I choose all this, or was it them? And yet, when she sings, she's happy. She stars in The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner. The film's huge. The soundtrack is even bigger. 44 million copies sold, and the big song is everywhere. Not her song, someone else's tune. It's Dolly Parton's, but she finds new meaning in an old hit. And that intro to it, the way she takes you into I Will Always Love You. 43 seconds of acapella. Just her voice and nothing else. Drawing words out, taking one syllable and making it flutter and dance. That's when it all makes sense. That's when she's Whitney Houston. The purity. It's not alone. Whitney is nippy. Nippy is naughty. And so we come to the drugs. Surprise they're there? They've always been there. Perfect imperfect. She tells Robin she was 14 when she first tried coke. Now she's huge and she's a superstar. It's easy. It's everywhere. Her brother Gary uses. Her brother John uses. She's travelling the world on something they call the Greatest Love Tour. Except it gets called something else within her band. The Greatest Drug Tour. When she tours the second album, the brothers are in rehab. So she puts rules in place. I won't get high after a certain time. I won't get high in big groups. Strange kind of rules, aren't they? They then try to make her go to rehab, but she doesn't want to go. How bad does it get? She gets caught at Hawaii airport with marijuana. That's the small stuff. Like her brothers, snorting coke isn't enough anymore. Now she's freebasing, burning it, getting the purest hit. Epic highs, crashing lows. Sissy tries to stage an intervention. 
A TV interviewer named Diane Sawyer asks her outright, and it's the strangest denial you've ever heard. She says, Crack is cheap. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Crack is whack. Rules? What rules? And so we come to the fourth person. Sissy the mother, Clive the producer, Robin the lover, and now Bobby Brown. The husband, the rogue, the dynamite. Whitney's dated famous men before. Jermaine Jackson, Michael's big brother, Eddie Murphy, and he's big. But this is different. And it starts at those Soul Train Music Awards in 1989. Remember how they mattered? Bobby's performing his big hit, My Prerogative. Good title, truthful title. Whitney is chatting to friends beforehand and she keeps bumping her backside into the man on the row in front, deliberately. Bobby, he's six years younger, 20 to her 26. He's a former child star, doing well with the transition, but he's still out of his depth. The first night they're together, he keeps saying the same thing to her. I can't believe I'm with Whitney Houston. Sissy, she doesn't like this vibe. Bobby's next big tune is called Humping Around. That's what he does in the video. It's what he's doing elsewhere if you listen to the rumors. Whitney, all her songs are about love and redemption. The greatest love of all, saving all my love for you. I will always love you. Humping Around isn't Whitney. It's not Sissy and it's not Clive Davis, but it's Nippy. Nippy is the rebel. Looks like an angel, but isn't. On Eddie Murphy's birthday, they're still together. It's messy. She shows up at his house wearing lingerie, a fur coat, and nothing else. One of his mates comes to the door. You can't come in. Eddie's busy. Then she shows up at a Bobby Brown concert. He's there with the mother of his kids. They have a fight, an actual fist fight, in front of her. The former Mrs. Brown shouts her own warning. If he'd do this to me, he'd do this to you. Want to know more about Bobby? A couple months on, he goes to Boston to tell his ex that he and Nippy are together. He gets her pregnant instead, humping around. Even on their wedding day, and Sissy's there, Clive Davis, Dion Warwick, Kevin Costner, Eddie Murphy phones her to say she's making a mistake. Don't marry Bobby. But there is something there. Bobby is in tears all the way through. He keeps saying to the pastor, Can I kiss her now? Can I kiss her now? And a year on, when they have a daughter, Chrissy, people start thinking, maybe this is okay. They throw a party at the end of another tour. Bobby comes up to Sissy, smiling like he won the lottery. I'm married to Whitney Houston, he shouts. That's the good stuff, but there's a lot of the bad. The time he smashes a glass near her face and she gets a deep three-inch cut across her cheek and needs plastic surgery. The time she goes to his hotel to surprise him when he's touring. He's drunk. He spits in her face. He chases her down a corridor. He's jealous. That's what people think. His career is not going the same way as hers. He smashes up her Porsche, spends a week in jail for violating his parole. 
why she likes that or some strange part of it. She's at the Grammys in 2000, getting an award for Best Female R&B Performance. On stage, she makes a point of looking at Sissy. She says, you forgot to give me my cards. I'll have to wing it. Then she points at Bobby and she says, honey, this one's for you. She's choosing this, not them. She sprinkles cocaine in her joints. We're a long way now from Luden's honey cough drops. Someone asks her why. Why don't you stop? And she says, because I like it. Something else to think about. Bobby Brown has ADHD. He's bipolar. And he'll swear later he never used cocaine until he met Whitney. He was about alcohol and weed. Now he's freebasing, now he's trying heroin. Something else too that Whitney says in a TV interview with Diane Sawyer. Sawyer asks this slightly weird question. Who's your biggest devil? And this is her answer. That would be me. Nobody makes me do anything I don't want to do. I'm either my best friend or my worst enemy. There's another thing, another question, a frightening one. And we'll ask it after this short break. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. So this question, Whitney has a sister-in-law, Pat. She has an assistant she calls Auntie Mary, and both say the same thing in a documentary that comes out in 2018, that Whitney and her brother Gary were sexually molested when they were younger. The person they both identify, Dee Dee Warwick, the cousin, the singer. Sissy, she's not sure, nor is Robin Crawford, but it's out there now. 
And that's why some say she wants Bobby and she wants a family. She wants the fairy tale, not the song she's been given to sing. Her own. Maybe that's why it's all falling apart instead. By 1998, she's cancelling shows. She's flaky, her voice, that beautiful instrument, her gift from God, it's ragged, it's old. She's meant to be singing at the Oscars in 2000. Burt Bacharach's in charge, the man who wrote all those songs for Dionne Warwick. She's there in rehearsals, but she's not there. She's missing cues walking over to Bobby. He's in the front row with his coat over his head. She's hoarse. Bacharach fires her. She does a Michael Jackson tribute concert. She's so thin, so ill-looking, that Clive Davis sends her this message. Dearest Whitney, when I saw you last night, I gasped. When I got home, I cried. My dear, dear Whitney. She's meant to be recording a duet with George Michael. Clive wants it to happen, Bobby doesn't, so it doesn't. Robin Crawford's still there, still the assistant. She buys George Michael a shirt to apologise for the no-show. Bobby loses it, shouts at her. You don't buy a man a gift from my wife. Robin resigns. 20 years they've been friends. That's over now. Whitney hires a voice coach. It's not Sissy. The coach says she can barely speak, let alone sing. And singing was the one thing that made her happy, remember? When you freebase cocaine, you absorb it through the membranes in your lungs. It wrecks them. It tears your throat apart. It also hits in 10 seconds. You're up like you've never been up. You're manic. You're in that ecstatic place. It's almost holy. And then the crash. Exhaustion. Depression. A deep paranoia. This is what Sissy finds when she goes to see her daughter's house. Mad eyes and staring faces spray painted on the walls, on the floors, inside cupboard doors. There's a huge portrait of Bobby, Whitney and Chrissy in one room. Someone has cut Whitney's face out, decapitated her. Sissy stages an intervention. Whitney's in rehab for four weeks. She divorces Bobby. She gets back with Clive Davis for her first album in seven years. She tours and she can't sing. The melisma, the fluttering. She can't hold those sounds. Her lungs are wrecked. She goes for the old high notes, the ones that are first dances and first kisses, and her voice breaks. Audiences walk out. People who love Whitney really love Whitney. And they don't want to see this. Here's what one fan says. She couldn't entertain a dead rat, to be honest. She does another big TV interview, this time with Oprah. This is a longer answer, but it's worth it. I knew in the days when I was a teenager singing for God, I was so sure. When I became Whitney Houston and all this other stuff happened, my life became the world's, my privacy, my business, who I was with, who I married, and I was like, that's not fair. I just wanted to be normal. Usually, when a celebrity dies suddenly, there's shock. This time, Nippy has been lost for so long that those around her, those four, they sort of know. She's staying at the Beverly Hilton in LA 
in Suite 434, it's the Grammys again. Clive Davis is throwing a party. She's meant to be there. She's exhausted, depressed, paranoid. She says she wants a bath. Aunt Mary, the assistant, leaves her for 30 minutes. When she comes back, the lights are off. She walks into the small bathroom. Light brown tiles, a narrow bathtub, and Nippy is face down in the water. She's not moving. They all find out in their own way. The mother, the producer, the lover, and the husband. Sissy is in her apartment in Newark. She hears her doorbell ringing. Strange. Security downstairs says no one has come in. There's nothing on the cameras. Then it's the phone, her son Gary. He just says, they found her upstairs. Sissy screams so loudly, the whole building hears. Robin Crawford is with her partner Lisa, having dinner with friends. Her phone rings, she ignores it. It rings again, then everyone's phone is ringing. She says, I felt my insides shattering. Bobby Brown is touring with his old band. He's due on stage. He cries, stops, cries again. He walks out and blows kisses at the sky. He shouts again, I love you, Whitney. Clive Davis, he's downstairs in the same Beverly Hilton Hotel and he doesn't cancel the party. He addresses the audience, talks about unspeakably tragic news. He says Whitney was loved. And he says this, Whitney would have wanted the music to go on. Houston's body is in the same building, four floors up from the party room. The police are in her room, suite 434, doing their investigation. They're all carrying on. Why? So others stand up? Shaka Khan calls it insanity. Sharon Osborne says it's disgraceful and they all have to deal with it their own way. When the body is brought back to Newark, brother Michael can't let go of the coffin. He's screaming, Nip, stop playing, get up, get up. Sissy thinks about the doorbell. That was Nippy coming home, she tells herself. She's safe with me now. The funeral is at the New Hope Baptist Church. Of course it is. The choir sing, Stevie Wonder sings, Alicia Keys sings. Sissy is there, Clive Davis is there. There are no seats reserved for Robin or Bobby. Robin stays anyway, Bobby is asked to leave. And when the coffin is carried out, covered in white flowers and roses, you hear it again. 43 seconds of her singing, all on her own. I will always love you, drawing words out, taking one syllable and making it flutter. Because that's when it all makes sense. That's when she's Whitney Houston. So the wise, Beverly Hills paramedics had arrived at 3.30 p.m. They attempted CPR. At 3.55 p.m., Whitney Houston had been pronounced dead. A month later, the LA coroner's office reports they say Houston's death was caused by drowning, heart disease, and cocaine use. 
They say the amount of coke in her body shows she used just before her death. They find four other drugs in her system too. They list the death as an accident. And now there's something else in that Oprah interview to think about. Oprah asks about Bobby. Was marrying him a way to escape? Whitney nods and she says this. He allowed me to be me. She says, he was my drug. That's what my high was, him. And the ripples move on. Sissy runs the church choir. Clive Davis signs Alicia Keys. Robin starts a family. Bobby marries again and has two more daughters. Chrissy, the daughter who watched her parents do everything they did. At the age of 22, she is found unresponsive in the bathtub of her home. For six months, she's in a coma. She never wakes up. Her own autopsy is all echoes, all heartbreak. Cannabis and alcohol in her body, plus a prescription drug for anxiety and sedation. They list it like this, immersion associated with drug intoxication. So that's who Whitney Houston is, that's nippy. Love and devotion, heartbreak and tears. Perfect imperfect. There's some things she used to say to her audiences at the start of big gigs. She'd say, I'll make you a deal. You give me some of you and I'll give you all of me. Every song has a story and that's Nippy's. That's Whitney's. That's the answer. And that was the story of Whitney Houston. It was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. Our editor was Phil Brown. For research, we used the books Remembering Whitney by Sissy Houston and A Song For You by Robin Crawford, as well as the film Whitney, directed by Kevin MacDonald. The music we used is from our partner BMG Production Music, but there's so many Whitney songs we could push you towards. I Wanna Dance With Somebody for the fun she's having, I will always love you for the acapella opening and maybe it's not right but it's okay for the later sound, the harder sound, the Bobby era sound. This is episode one of a whole series called Death of a Rockstar with new episodes out every Thursday about Freddie Mercury, George Michael, Amy Winehouse and more. And if you want another Crowd Network podcast to listen to, check out Death of a Sports Star. It's made by the same people who brought you this Whitney Houston episode. And so if you thought this was good, search for Death of a Sports Star and listen to the story of Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Oh, and tell your friends too. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hey you, did you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. 
Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week, I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.